Hello and welcome to the podcast, Don't Let God Put You Off the Bible. It being the month of Christmas, I have produced a Christmas special and I sincerely apologise for it coming out so late. Please believe me, it's nothing to do with laziness or lethargy on my part, indeed not. It's all to do with incompetence, I just find it so difficult to do these things. But I tried, I really tried. And the more I saw other podcasters flinging out their timely seasonal offerings, the more of a failure I felt, and so the descent began. Anyway, dragging myself back to a more positive note, normally we will have the podcast and then retire to the podcast bar for the final segment for a more informal drink and chat. However, this being the late Christmas special, we're going to plonk ourselves down in the bar for the entire show. The guest list is small but salubrious. Yourself, me, and Mr. Jolly Walker sat to my left here, ready to be sipped without restraint. That is what I wrote originally, but it's all changed. As you know from previous episodes, my daughter buys me whiskey for birthdays and Christmas, and this year she has surpassed herself. I have before me a Glenfiddich, 15-year-old single malt. In fact, it's called uh, Solera 15. Hmm. I don't think I have ever consumed a liquid this old before, knowingly at least. So I have great expectations. And to all those friends who have listened to the podcast from the start, a special welcome, and I can only admire your verbal pain threshold. And to those of you listening for the first time, I say thank you. And welcome. Just don't say I didn't warn you. In this Christmas special, I'm going to pick out some little curiosities in the Bible that often get overlooked with a casual read, or sometimes by many people, even after close study. So let's dive straight in. I want to start by briefly dipping into the Old Testament. In Gen- uh, no, I don't. I want to briefly start by taking a large sip of this 15-year-old Glenfiddich I have. You might think that I'm being paid to advertise this. Think on. In Genesis, there are two completely different creation stories. Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. They are written very differently, they tell a different and sometimes contradictory story, and they seem to have very different styles. For example, in Genesis 1, God seems very distant and does what he does from afar, an unapproachable divinity. In Genesis 2, he moves around amongst the people, and he has interaction with them. But hold hard, I hear you cry. Genesis 2 seems to carry on from Genesis 1 fairly seamlessly. Yes, at the start it does. But then suddenly, Adam is being created all over again. Did the birds and the beasts come first, or did Adam and Eve? It depends whether you read Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. Did God create man and woman together, or did Adam come a while before Eve? It depends whether you believe Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. Two different stories, two different styles. The same can be said for Moses going to the top of Mount Sinai. Does he go up by himself or with company? 
How long is he up there for? And what happens when he comes down? There seems to be several versions conflated into a single story. The same goes for the flood. How many of each of the animals went into the ark? Two of each or seven? Was a dove or a raven sent out to check for dry land? Or, or both? How long did it rain for? Forty days or a hundred? Again, several versions of the same story seem to be interwoven. Faced with this seeming conundrum, scholars, bless them, have redoubled their efforts to sit there and read harder and longer to try and explain seemingly glaring contradictions in some of the key passages in Old Testament scripture. They have come to the conclusion that the books in the Old Testament covering the earliest events are in the style of a kind of depository for different versions of the same story that were abroad at the time of writing. It seems to have been an effort to preserve for posterity the old traditions in all their variations so that none were lost in the folds of time, two, three or more being woven into a single narrative. So in the Old Testament we are not reading a single consistent monolith of scripture, but a compendium of verbal tradition as it developed. A fairly neat solution to the issue and, for what it's worth, one I quite like. It is worth reading the episodes I have singled out above with this view in mind because it can be quite surprising how separate opposing threads begin to stand out in the seemingly single story narrative. And here I want to mention an important point about reading the Bible. It, this is my hobby horse in the building but it's Christmas so he can come in when he likes. It is extremely unfashionable to admit interest in the Bible, and even more so um, on reading it on an ongoing basis. It's unfashionable unless you are critically slamming it. But when you actually analyse the criticism, people, without being aware of it, are only criticising the interpretations of the scripture or the way it has been used by various groups or individuals to further their own ends. A simple but classic example of this is when you hear yet another apparent expert talking about how Christianity stole all the pagan festivals. The 25th of December was the date of a pagan festival, Saturnalia, Roman, uh, apparently. Same with Easter and the Harvest Festival. Well, yes, but that has nothing to do with the Bible. Nowhere does the New Testament set out any dates for any festival, a uh, Christian festival. All this came a long while after, and to further the needs of people responsible for feeding, uh, spreading Christianity through the Roman Empire. Don't blame it on the Bible. Blame it on the people. Mm, I've got a bit songy there, haven't I? Blame it on the people who came after, furthering their own cause. It's a very simple example of my point, but it's relevant. People who refuse to take an interest in the content and construction of the Bible because, in their mind, it's filled with a complete load of tosh are simply denying themselves the chance to gain a unique insight into the mind of ancient man. Whatever you think the status of the content is, fantasy or fiction, the very fact that it was written and was regarded highly enough for it to survive to the present day is reason enough to be fascinated by it. It is absolutely unique. I shall now dismount my hobby horse.
It's an amusing coincidence that whenever I settle back with a glass of whiskey or two, my trusted high horse always seems to wander into the room like a curious cow. Turning to the New Testament, let's look at how the very early developing theology of the Christian community created some strange and glaring additions and omissions from the narratives in the key book. I'm taking the beginning of Acts for an example to illustrate the point. The four Gospels close with Jesus having been crucified, and in three of them, for sure, Jesus having returned to promise a coming kingdom to his close disciples. So there we are with a small band of followers, Acts says about 120, but it was more likely in the low 30s, mostly men, but certainly some women, with no leader to guide and reassure them, which they would almost have certainly have needed. After all, their inspired leader had been summarily dispatched by the Romans, so they must have been worried sick that they may, they may well come after them next, if history was anything to go by. Someone would almost certainly have had to steady the ship and calm the cattle. A new leader must have been the most urgent and important order of business at this juncture, but Acts, the book that takes up the story from here, has none of it. What does it open with after a brief recap of what Jesus has promised for the near future? The election of an apostle to replace Judas. It does its best to give more weight of importance to this act by linking it with the prophecies in the Old Testament. But the omission of an election of a new leader is glaring. Peter is, in a roundabout way, thrust forward by the literature as the lead apostle in places, and certainly the one favoured by Jesus, notwithstanding the so-called apostle who Jesus loved in the Gospel of John, but that is an entirely different context. Surely there would have been a lot of finger-drumming and withering looks running around that top-floor room while the key apostles shuffled around muttering to themselves about the best candidate for an addition to their inner circle. But the fact remains that Acts pays no attention whatsoever to who became the leader of the Jerusalem Assembly, as it came to be called amongst other things. And why? Because the replacement for Jesus turned out to be James his brother and the developing doctrine of the divinity of Jesus and the virginity of Mary meant that the direct siblings of Jesus were becoming not a little embarrassing. But if you read the beginning of Acts carefully and stay aware of what you are looking out for, below the surface of the water there are tiny jewels glimmering that shine out from what was probably a true account of the succession of James. Words and phrases jump out as having come from an alternative narrative. A narrative that puts James in his proper place in the genesis of Christianity. And it's interesting that when you actually, when James is introduced into Acts, the proper James, uh, James the brother of Jesus, there is, it's not actually an introduction, an introduction, it's as if we've already been introduced to James and he's walking into this scene with us already familiar with who he is. So there's an inconsistency there as well, which indicates to us that there was very probably scenes previous um, that gave a, an introduction to James. Um, these having been uh, redacted or interpolated in later editions of the Gospels. Um, 
So I'm not going to go into it any further because it's not practicable to cover this in a Christmas special, but I've just thrown it in there as a teaser. But the same thing can be looked at for many of the stories and events related in the New Testament. And this is where an important divide comes between biblical historians. The first divide comes between those historians who have a faith and those that don't. All biblical scholars will tell you that they study and draw conclusions with a completely unbiased mind. But the truth is that this is not so common. A majority of biblical historians are from a religious background and this often colours how they interpret evidence. It is very difficult not to give more weight to evidence that backs up your own leanings than to that which goes against it. At the other extreme you have the anti-religious historians who jump at the chance to ridicule at every opportunity. Sometimes they are so set on disproving the very foundations of Christianity that they refuse to acknowledge quite potent evidence. And this approach can be just as misleading to the casual inquirer as can be the overly religious viewpoint. So those are the two extremes, but in the middle ground there is a finer but possibly more important divide that splits scholars and historians who have no particular leaning. Both sides of this divide accept that large parts of the New Testament were written with specific agendas in mind. To get points across to new converts, stories had to be punchy and easily understood. And these middle ground scholars would all agree that truth was sacrificed on many occasions to make way for events that could deliver a greater impact and be easily understood. The divide between them lies in what they believe to be the true agendas behind the more romanticised stories. Were they simply colourful stories to be taken at face value? Or were their meanings behind them darker, more sophisticated mocking attacks on what were considered to be the enemies of Christianity? And as we discovered in an earlier podcast, as time went on, these enemies were increasingly not to be seen as the Romans and Gentiles, but Jews and Judeo-Christians. Judeo-Christians are Jews who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah, but not the divine Son of God. It seems that as time went on, Christian communities were beginning to feel more and more isolated. The hardline Jews certainly would have had no truck with their belief in a Messiah that got swatted by the Romans. A crucifixion of the true Messiah had never, ever been something they had expected. And the Jewish Christians certainly thought Jesus to be the Messiah, but in no way did they think he was divine. So, effectively, the Christians weren't welcome in either camp, and were being squeezed out and isolated from all sides. So in this kind of environment, it would not have been surprising if, in Christian writings, the authors took the opportunity to take swipes at their protagonists. Possible examples of this could be cited throughout the New Testament, a typical example being the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. Philip is on his travels when he comes across the eunuch reading the Old Testament. Philip talks with him and eventually converts him to Christianity with a baptism. Is this a simple tale of conversion, as it appears, or is it a mocking reference to the practice of circumcision by the Jews? 
In Josephus's The Jewish War, he goes into detail about how the sons of a certain eastern queen, who had become fascinated by the Jewish religion, had been persuaded by visiting Jews that they would have to be circumcised if they wanted to truly convert. This accounts and its connections to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts are quite complica complicated, convoluted, and certainly not for now, but they are there. So if you're on the cynical side of the divide between scholars, you could argue for this being an intentional ridiculing of Jewish customs and law. But just reading it at face value, it seems simply a charming story of conversion. It depends which side of the finer divide you stand. But perhaps the most insightful example of this hidden agenda type of writing can be found in what was to become a cornerstone practice of Christianity. Both in Acts and in Paul's letters, there is a meeting between James and other apostles and Paul in Jerusalem to lay down some ground rules about what Paul should be teaching. There is a strong undercurrent of tension between Paul and James in Paul's letters and Acts, mainly from Paul and directed at James and this meeting was intended to clear up exactly what Paul should be preaching to the Gentiles. In Acts, a kind of negotiated agreement about which laws Paul should be enforcing with his converts was reached, and James apparently states that as so long as Paul insists that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from strangled things, that's probably roadkill, dead animals, and from blood, not eating blood was fundamental to Judaism because it was viewed as the life force. It was sacred, so it was sinful to consume it. Though in Galatians, written around 48 AD, Paul details his meeting with James where they strike their agreement. Although I will say that here, as opposed to Acts, which details the laws that need to be abided by, Paul simply states that all James asked was that the poor be remembered. He does not specifically state that Paul should insist his converts abstain from eating blood. In general terms, if there is a discrepancy between Paul and Acts, we have to defer to Paul as he is early and more credible. However, we can feel pretty sure that James, a fundamental Jew through and through, would have ensured Paul did not bumble around teaching that eating blood is fine, as he indeed does according to Acts. But before we know it, he writes in 1 Corinthians 11.23 and following that the way to proclaim, pro, sorry, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is to drink wine as if it were Jesus' blood as directed by Jesus himself. Remember, Paul's letters are written before the Gospels, so he was the first to detail this sacrament. He says he received the details of this new covenant in my blood from the Lord himself. Seriously? Jesus, again a Jew through and through, was asking that wine be consumed as if it were his blood. Pushing aside any arguments about the whole ritual only being a representation and it never was actual blood, just the very thought of anything linking a Jewish sacrament with the act of drinking blood surely would have been a complete anathema. And coming from the Jewish Messiah, really? Wherever this came from, and we don't really know that, surely could this not be viewed as a very dark device, 
aimed at driving a final wedge in between the Judeo-Christians and Paul's Gentile converts. In fact, Paul goes on to say that, and here I not only paraphrase, but also proper an interpretation of what he is saying, because it is not cut and dried. He seems to be saying, and not only do you have to perform this ritual, you have to do it with total sincerity, and if you don't, it will not go well for you. You can just imagine some Judeo-Christians thinking, well, if Jesus said do it, then we'll do it, but we aren't going to like it. Now that's not what I would call an act of sincerity. So it's almost like Paul daring them. Come on then, let's do it, and this time with feeling. It seems just too much of a goad against the old ways not to come under very close suspicion. A further amusing little play on words in this whole new covenant in my blood doctrine would very much have been recognised by the Essenes and probably the Zealots in Jerusalem. Would-be messiahs were always dragging hordes of their followers over the River Jordan in an act of representing the setting up of the new temple, a new covenant in the land of Damascus. This is how the Dead Sea Scrolls describe it. The present temple, according to the scrolls, had been polluted by the ruling priesthood, and so a new kingdom of God was going to be set up in the land of Damascus. It seems that the term land of Damascus was being used as a kind of catch-all term for a general area over the Jordan River from Israel. Uh, just interrupting briefly, um, <clears throat> listen to this. Did you hear that? That is the sound of a cork being displaced. Of a very, very lovely whiskey. Just a little top up. Okay. Right, where were we? So you have the Essenes with their new covenant in the land of Damascus. And then suddenly you have the Christians and Paul with their new covenant in his blood. Jesus's, that is. You can, if you are so inclined, see a cynical language connection here. The homophonic root in Hebrew of the Greek word Damascus is dam, blood, and kos, cup. Paul could be seen to be turning the Essenes' new covenant in the land of Damascus into the new covenant in his blood through agile wordplay. Intriguingly, the Essenes make reference to the lying spelter building a worthless city upon blood in the scroll known as 1QP Hab. Could this really be a direct reference to Paul? No one has made a direct reference from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the New Testament or characters in the New Testament. But this has to be put forward as a possible link. Some think so, but anyway. It all depends on what side of the secondary divide you are on. Was Paul so cynical as to take the language of his opponents and turn it back around on them? If you're a Christian, you wouldn't like to think so. If you're not... It's intriguing. The problem is that, however much you stack evidence up in this kind of history, it never really adds up to proof positive. This can be highlighted in any number of typical cases. Would the Romans really have allowed Joseph of Arimathea to take the body of Jesus and place it in a tomb? Well, 
it would have gone against their normal practice of treating victims of crucifixion in the most humiliating way possible, throwing them to dogs or making sure they rotted before the eyes of anyone who was tempted to follow in their footsteps. But they could have done. They could have done. Did Pilate really consult a baying crowd when trying Jesus? Did he really make the gesture of washing his hands clean from the blood of Jesus in protest at what he was being harangued into doing? From what we know of Pilate and the workings of Roman law at the time, there was almost certainly no crowd and Pilate would have made the decision to have Jesus crucified with very little fanfare and would have moved on to the next order of business of the day without a single look back. But he could have done. He could have conducted a trial with a crowd in attendance. He could have had reservations over what would have amounted to an unsafe conviction. He probably didn't when you look at all the data we have, but he just might have done. In our modern lives, there are always things happening that are exceptions to the rule, and it was just the same in first century Palestine, obviously. All we can do as people highly curious to know what is the fact and what is fiction is get to know the period as best we can and then decide what was the most likely thing to have happened and what was not. This Christmas special has been shorter than my usual efforts due to me being slightly worried that my pace of consumption of 15-year-old Glenfiddich on this side of the mic seems to be increasing steadily. Another shot and I may well be off to search out my most trusted high horse again, mount up and let loose with an unending volley of rhetoric about something appallingly politically incorrect in blissful ignorance of the fact. But I will be back in the new year with a characteristically ponderous offering and it would mean a lot to me if you challenged yourself to endure a further, a further episode. Your company is never taken for granted and you have my unending respect. Take care and hopefully see you soon.